0: Your lips can do a whole lot more than kiss. Your lips express love and speak your truth. Plump your lips with Juvederm Volbella XE or Juvederm Ultra XE for natural-looking results that are completely and uniquely you. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XE or Juvederm Ultra XE. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
1: Welcome to the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Sorelli. On the Everyday Warrior Podcast, we seek out in-depth conversations from a multitude of industries or professions to discuss their failures, darkest moments, and of course, their time-tested principles or positive habits that have led them to success so that you and I may learn from them and accelerate our own journeys to attain success as well. Since I have personally retired from the military in 2018, I've done a lot of self-reflection and come to realize that the most lethal warriors I served with were not the dudes who would tell you how many deployments they have, how many kills they have, or even how many medals they have on their chest. They were empathetic, they were kind, and they were respectful. Tim Kennedy, our guest for today, represents these qualities in abundance. Tim has had an extraordinary life. Aside from being a master sergeant in the US Army Green Berets, Tim was a world-ranked professional MMA fighter. He's a highly successful entrepreneur and now an innovative or I should probably say disruptive school founder and headmaster. This episode was recorded in front of a live audience at Whiskey Tango Foxtrot in Austin, Texas. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Tim Kennedy. Well, guys, again, Tim Kennedy, thank you for uh, joining us. We're going to dive right in, man. We've got a lot to talk about. Right. I, think this, I think this is going to be more conversational than this is going to be Working a lot of stories. out of stories. the bar and just hitting, going back 20 years and be like, oh, man, connection. Crazy. Yeah. So let's start for the listeners who, I mean, you're a man that doesn't need to be introduced, but they probably don't know your life story, your background coming up. Why don't you give us that?
2: Oh, man. Uh, Incredibly blessed to be born to two amazing parents that love me, which is more than anybody could ever ask for. I had a father that was a, I mean, still is a renowned narcotics officer Um, during his time stealing planes full of cocaine from Pablo Escobar, you know, and, um, what was made normal watching how to cook meth in uh, a show taking place in Albuquerque, New Mexico. My dad was one of the first to figure out how chemically to make meth. So he could put in place some policies to prevent how much drugs you could buy over the counter, you know, and get running Smurfs to go steal stuff to, to make meth. Those were all policies that were, really I think I you could be attributed to my father my mom an incredible kind woman that was fierce like she loved and uh so you feared your mom oh my she, I still more, fear more than
1: him. your dad yes yeah that's yeah. an Irish family a, a
2: six foot two six foot three 250 pound narcotics officer Olympic level athlete ah, he's a he's a puppy dog compared to my mom yeah so
1: we did you inherit your athletic ability from your dad
2: I'm I'm the runt to tell you the truth uh my my athletic ability as far as like the kennedy family goes is um they're ashamed of me they're like oh you fought for the world title twice but you lost <laughs> so do they call you world champion or or just two-time loser so in the pedigree of athlete in my family is i'm i'm truly I'm not, I'm not being humble here i'm the shortest i am the least like Mass muscular and least athletic. I have hair on my legs. They all look like Norwegian gods, and and then there's like the short runt Tim that they used to occasionally throw a a bone
1: of leftovers to. It's it's amazing uh, when you surround yourself with people how high of a bar they hold. And it sounds like the uh, Kennedy family holds a high bar. Yeah, it was your brother that sort of pushed you into combatives and self defense. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, uh, back to being the small runt
2: of the family. My my brother early, you know, freshman year in high school, he's six foot, 200 and something pounds. All his friends are giants, you know, they're all athletes. And, um, and then like, there was a game that was, Hey, let's pick up Tim and throw him in the pool. And that game lasted until they couldn't pick me up. And then it was like, then they couldn't get me in the pool. And then it was oh we're taking chris to the hospital because he tried to get tim in the pool and then it was okay we're gonna take jordan chris nick and kevin to the hospital because they tried to get them in the pool so at some point they're like we're at a point of diminished returns let's just not play with that that crazy coked out kid and
1: uh, we'll just leave him the corner as the hairy retard so you you grew up in uh in slow san luis obispo yep
2: yeah. I and grew up in Atascadero. I was born in San Luis Obispo in the general hospital while well, they used to do deliveries, which they don't even do anymore. But uh, born in San Luis Obispo, raised in Atascadero in Cambria.
1: In, in grammar school, were you playing traditional sports, basketball, soccer? No. Uh, no. Martial arts. I started young. What, what was the first martial arts?
2: The first one was Shotokan karate. Then it was Taekwondo. And then it was...
1: Uh, his karate kid. Let's, yeah. let's be honest. Nobody knew, yeah. What,
2: yeah, <laughs> nobody knew what
1: Jiu-Jitsu was back then. No, it because didn't exist. UFC hadn't even, yes. Yeah. I,
2: I, when I finally started getting into um, jujitsu, the closest I could get was Japanese jujitsu called Kia Jiu-Jitsu. And tragically, my two senseis uh, have both passed. One of them horrifically um, defending his family. He was actually killed by the sword that he was given when he received his black belt. When he was fighting a home invader, he got the guy out and, and, uh, and, and transpired from blood loss after saving his family's life. Pretty incredible.
1: California, California. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as a Um, California native, that, 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 that sort of pisses me off, but
2: But I would have to drive to Santa Barbara to train with a purple belt. Like I would drive two and a half hours to go find a purple. That was the closest belted real Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy at that time was two and a
1: half hours away but you weren't you weren't making that drive every day
2: not every day but i mean it would it would be like every couple of months would have to go and check in and see how we're doing in you know like, and he couldn't even belt us that was just to see like the cross-pollination of grappling where we we're at so i was wrestling you know i was doing by this time hawaiian kempo and yeah. then japanese jiu-jitsu. He still had to like go back to the source and try and get good that's
1: how it was that how sparse it was back then with, with Jiu-Jitsu? jujitsu? Yeah, with jujitsu. So at what point did you join the pit with Chuck Liddell? Oh man, you're just gonna bring up all these humiliating stories. Of course. Yeah, I mean that's so- the point of it. We want vulnerability
2: on this podcast. <laughs> you're, gonna, you're gonna get it. So I'm in I'm in a Taskerrow at uh Dokan Dokan Jiu-Jitsu, which is the Japanese jujitsu school, and in walks Jake Shields and Chuck Liddell and um, they just saw jujitsu in a place that was 15 minutes away from San Luis Obispo so like hey let's go check this place out I hear they spar and um, so they just came in I was the best grappler in the room and I mean I felt like a tr- and a child isn't even fair like I, I was a useless bag of blood that they were just mopping the floor with, with, with ease like the hardest part was just moving my body and uh
1: and I had no control of it. It, it, it. How old were you when you made that that leap into the pit? I was uh, 17, 16, 17, 17, yeah. And already had a, a wrestling background? Yeah, wrestling, jujitsu, and, and traditional martial arts background. Did, did you find yourself ill-prepared when you stepped in with these guys?
2: Yes, yeah. I mean, it, it, was, it was horrific. At first, you have to have you have to have uh, to the ladies out here, you just can't understand this. You have to have as a 16 year old testosterone that is being pumped from your brain and then magnified by your, your stupid balls to understand (laughs) like there's a, a degree of invincibility that you're like, I can do anything. And then when somebody comes in, your brain can't even compute that you can't do it. So when Chuck and Jake are like murdering me, I was like, well, this doesn't make sense. Like there's something wrong here in the calculus of, of why I can't, you know, deal with these other two humans. I'm obviously a more elite athlete. I'm clearly a better jujitsu practitioner. Um, And that is like the 16 year old invincible brain being like, literally, I could not understand how I could not beat them. And even at the end, after they've just like smashed me for 60 minutes, I'm still sitting there like, well, that was weird. Like still not making sense that they're just better. They're more trained, they're more practiced, they're more rehearsed,
1: they're better conditioned, they're better athletes. I, I, so the pit is just renowned. A producer of champions such such as yourself. Um, All, almost champion. Well, you're world class. Yeah. You're champion to me. The pedigree that it attracted, I mean, that just had to be such a high bar. Every, it was every single day. And yeah. I'm assuming you, you started attending every single day yeah. at, at some point. Was it just, what were, I mean, was it two to three hours? How, how long were you there? Just I mean, if we're so John Hackleman
2: the kind of founder Hawaiian Kempo of Arroyo Grande, California. We had the pit at his house, which was the octagon and the hill wheelbarrow sledgehammers. If you, if you follow John Hackman, um, you know about this, if you train with him, it's, it's horrible. We have the dunes in Pismo. We have slow kickboxing in San Luis Obispo, and we have the Hawaiian Kempo school, the pit in Arroyo Grande. The, those, that was kind of like the circle of places that you would train at when you're in camp. And, um, Everybody from the entire nation would come there at the time. Randy Couture, Matt Lindland, Tito Ortiz, everyone that is the who's who would come to the pit to train. I was hanging out with Randy like two weeks ago. And I'm like, do you remember rolling with a 17-year-old shaved head kid? And, um, And I went over and I was like giving it to Matt Lindland a little bit. And you commented, like, who is that kid? And I remember that. And he's like, man, I do remember. I'm like, that was me, man. Man, that was me. That was me. And he's like, that was, and you know, I was thinking back that far 20 years, 25 years, uh, Randy Couture was in the pit smashing me, just so we're super clear absolutely smashing me. And uh, that was
1: normal, was just to have those, that level of guys come through. You know, funny story about slow, you, pr- you probably don't know this. It's, uh, I can't say it's a, good mark for the SEAL teams. Yeah. Uh, but we were banned from San Luis Obispo where we used to train. And I can't remember. There's a, there's a military base where we used to do special reconnaissance training.
2: Yeah, it was, it's called camp San Luis. Okay. That's where you, go.
1: that's where they were. And that's where your buddies were. Well, it sounds like, you know, the story, like it's coming. So I'll tell it for the, uh, the listeners. So, you know, of course when training was done on a Friday night, you get the weekend sometimes uh, when you're not in the field during the weekend. And, a SEAL platoon went into slow and sometimes SEAL platoons or any ODA team uh, sort of when you roll in with 20 people deep, you have this false sense of we own this place. Yeah. Well, apparently there was a lot of members from the pit there. That's right. And it turned into a fight that broke out into the street. And I actually knew the platoon commander at the time. who was telling me the story. He's like, Mike, I was on the concrete. My arms were, were stiff. And I was knocked out cold yeah. and uh, pretty much every SEAL had his ass beat. And uh, we, we were banned by the SEAL leadership from going to, uh, to SLO.
2: Which is a bummer because it's one of the most beautiful places on the planet. Absolutely. And the diving's amazing. Camp San Luis has a bunch of infrastructure for force on force. It's a great place. But I have to, I have to explain, explain the street. So you have the library. Wait, wait, wait. So you were there. Oh, yeah, I was there. Yeah, so um, I was like a 19 year old bouncer at the time, and so you have the library, which is the bar that I would bar back and just essentially be a slave to Eric, whatever he told me to do. I wasn't allowed to be in the bar because I wasn't 20 over 21, so I just had to like work in the back and work in the trash. Um, yeah, so I just did trash and bar backing, and then um, next door to that was of the slow brewery across the street was the frog and peach club. So the worst thing the seals could have ever done when they were getting kicked out of the library was to take the fight into the street because now they're surrounded like custard with not just the staff from the library, which were all UFC and pride fighters, but also slow brew and the frog and peach were, who were also all pride and UFC fighters. So when they went, when the fight went into the street, And of course it was like Eric Joders and Chuck Liddell and Dan McGee and Scott Adams and a 19 year old Tim Kennedy and a Scott Lights Out Lighty and a Cruz Gomez. I'm naming all these names because these are all who's who's in the world of fighting, you know. Gan went on to fight for the UFC heavyweight championship. He fought for the pride championship. Obviously Chuck Iceman Liddell, UFC light heavyweight champion. Scott Adams undefeated in the UFC, retired after like eight fights. Eric Schilders, by far the best fighter out of the whole entire group. I think he only had like 10 fights. He also retired at 10 and 0. Glover Teixeira, the current UFC light heavyweight champion. All of those people were here. And then in the center were the seals. (laughs) Surrounded by the best fighters on the planet, so I mean, there's a but bunch Navy of great, SEALs, dude. I know Navy SEALs. Um, there's a bunch of really cool takeaways. Oh yeah, there are. Yeah, um, right now, everywhere that I go, like I never drink when I'm working, when I'm deployed, when I'm training. This is for one good reason, because if you look back at special operations, almost every single negative event. Almost every single one of them with very few exceptions, these extraordinary outliers, but the bell curve, 95,
1: 99% involve alcohol. So my wife's like pointing at me like, Hey, are you listening right now in the audience? Yes, I am. Thank you. Uh, And in
2: that bell curve, are some horrific things because you have very, very skilled trained people that live extraordinary lives. And then the little bit of their brain that gives them a moment to pause is inhibited by alcohol. And it's it's really the most dangerous group on the planet, special operations to inhibit their decision-making process. So as a practice, I always say um, about Rangers and seals and, and green berets, like a stud is gonna stud. So like you have to know that and then put in parameters to control where they 're going to go, like I with the, the guys that I work with, I always want to keep us occupied because idle hands are so dangerous oh, when it comes idle to hands guys like the us. work, yeah,
1: yeah. Well, it's even know your surroundings, yeah, and if you don't don't make assumptions that you're the toughest guy in the room, yeah I, so I remember a story uh, you know the day we graduated buds, we still had a report in i don 't remember why the next morning on a Saturday yeah. at like eleven um, and one of the kids has just two raccoon eyes. He just had been just knocked out two black eyes. And I looked at him and I'm like, Hey man, what what happened? He's like, I got in a fight last night. I'm like, at what point did graduating from buds equate to a black belt in jujitsu? He's like, yeah, I wasn't thinking well. And of course alcohol was involved, but special operations is very good at what they do. They're the Jack of all trades. They're not a world-class fighter unless you know, you've, they've, they've dedicated their life to the sport like you have. Some of them are very good fighters, decent yeah, a fighters. More, a ton who are, of yes, them are. But it's hard to be active duty on special operations and, and, and truly you know, perfect that craft yeah. while, while civilians are doing it four, five, six, seven hours a day.
2: Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's impossible to, to be at the peak of the sport. And um, you know, we, we have to do so much. You know, like land navigation, free fall, qualified and, you know, open bolts and our rifles and our pistols, you know, like movement, linkups, planning, you know, like all the stuff that we have to know to in- include how to be violent. Uh, but all, every single one of those things are perishable skills. And depending on what we're going to go and do, we always shape our training to go and do that thing that we're going to go and do. Yes, we keep a baseline, you know, like and we, yeah. we keep that competency yeah. at a very, very high level. The most lethal on the planet but we still have a pre-mission train up that, ass, that assesses and proves there's like a proof of concept that we are able to go and do the thing that we say that we're going to do and that validation is part of that exercise that we have to do well you just, that just doesn't happen when you walk into the street and you're surrounded by the most elite fighters on the planet right like had that SEAL team been given a pre-mission train up to go and train they, they could have been in a fight But what oh, they, happened would, have, they was, would have had to find an out
1: real quick yeah.
2: yeah, for sure. But they would have had the whereabouts to understand the operational environment and who would be there and what they needed to do to be successful
1: there. Um, yeah, we just don't have enough time to be good, the best at all of it. No, and, and you're, you're not intended to be the best. I mean, that's that's the thing about special operations that people don't understand. We're not looking for the fastest runner. runner. We're not looking for the fastest swimmer, the strongman, the CrossFit champion. We're looking for somebody who is a Swiss army knife that can do pretty much or have a competence at many different yeah. things. The other thing I take away from that, and we're seeing a lot in society is like this mob mentality. It's amazing. And, and you know, even within the SEAL teams, there's a guy who just ran his mouth, but he ran his mouth because he knew he had 19 other guys behind yeah. his back. And, you know, the true measure of man is not, if you can stand strong when you've got you know, serious support, but yeah. can you stand, stand strong when you're by yourself? And I guarantee none of those guys would have run their mouths yeah. uh, had they been by themselves. I mean, here in Austin, not not but two blocks from where we're sitting
2: right now, um, there's a terrible shooting with a um, a a young man that worked out at Fort Hood, and uh, he he came down here as an Uber driver, just trying to make some buck on the weekend, and um, that mob mentality came out, and you know uh, horrifically somebody had to die because of it. And you, I, I have a new podcast called About Violence, and we dissect these things and we we look at. Right now, a ton of time is being spent on this mob mentality. Like there's nothing more dangerous than three kids with skateboards, you know, yeah. surrounded by 40 of their friends. Like that is a very dangerous thing. And, uh, you know, you have seen in insult like City, Utah, where it's just a guy makes a wrong turn, he gets lost. And now he's sitting surrounded by a protest and they're all screaming at him like he meant to be there. And the guy's like, my Google Maps isn't working. And the next thing you know, that guy has to defend himself and fight for his life. So, yeah, that mob mentality is
1: dangerous and be, be humble be kind always it's just there's, there's no reason to well no there's always a reason to fight if need be but uh, a lot of these altercations that you see are just uh, these aren't those aren't mutually exclusive things like being humble
2: and being kind you can also be an absolute fucking savage you know, like I, I can sit there and love my kids and look at my six-year-old son with his... He looks like he's right out of Alaska Mohicans. He's got hair in the middle of his back. She has striations on his chest from playing lacrosse and hockey. The dude's an absolute stud. You know, I'm so proud of that guy. You know, my beautiful teenage daughters yeah. in college and my beautiful wife, my beautiful two-year-old. And it would take a half a heartbeat for me to turn my back on them and kill everything in the room that was getting near them and be able to turn right back to them and embrace them with absolute compassion and love. It's so like, I, I think a lot of times... There's a misrepresentation of what the warrior looks like, and I, the most powerful warriors throughout history, the samurai, the Greeks, Spartans, like their sculptors, their philosophers, they their lovers, their fathers, their brothers, their sisters, like they were apps. They, they were such beautifully balanced
1: humans, but man, they could fight. They were restrained until they needed to be. Yeah. So you know, I know you are your worst critic, or at least just doing research on you for this podcast. I mean, you had some harsh words about yourself. Before nine eleven, oh, uh, and I'm going to quote a self-serving, narcissistic, ethnocentric fucking piece of shit. That's about right. Yep. Yet you were a firefighter and EMT as a teenager. Yep. What, what, what was the, uh, the 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 feeling behind that comment? Even though you were a high, achie- high achiever at that, uh, or overachiever at that age.
2: I mean, I, we we could look at some of the best basketball and football players on the planet right now, and very high achievers that hit their wives, you know, they're just horrible humans, you know, just because you you have a, a capability or a competency or, or a God given gift, like that doesn't make you ooh, a good human. And at the time, you know, I, I had every opportunity to be a good human, you know, my, my a loving father, a loving mother, you know, coming from, a position like where I could go to any school I wanted, you know, I could as an athlete, I could, I could yeah. literally do anything. But instead, you know, like I'm going and fighting bare knuckles in Mexico, and I'm knocking up multiple women, um, possibly contracting HIV. You know, like these these were dis- like conscious de- decisions uh, that were circumventing every opportunity for success
1: for an absolute self serving ego. So let me let me ask this. Cause I, you know, Sebastian Younger wrote a great book called Tribe. Was that also a product of the people you surrounded yourself with at that time? Yeah. From,
2: I, I lost my best friend at 15 and that best friend was a great human and he was, and, and all of our friends around that nucleus were great Christian, hardworking, um, just good kids. And I wanted nothing to do with them. You know, I wanted to like, where's the nearest drug dealer? Cause that's going to be my friend. You know, who's the guy that can fight? Who's the guy that has the fast car? You know, who wants to go and hop and throw, throw eggs out of the car? Like I just, I, I wouldn't, I wanted nothing to do with that purity. I wanted nothing to do with that innocence because innocence was lost. And so I, I was searching for, for ways to be destructive. You know, like I didn't know how to cope. I didn't know how to grieve yet. And um, so my, a form of a dangerous, you know, adolescent Disaster was, you know, practice from
1: 15 to, I mean, hell, 25. Did 9 11 change things for you? Because you you enlisted shortly after that on the 18 X ray program, which is a, a direct route after boot camp to it, uh, yeah, to special forces. Uh, there were a bunch of catalysts that that
2: became the genesis of the movement. It took it, it took 18 months after 9 11 for me to be in boots on ground, uh, but on 9 11 I was in a line of a few thousand people in San Luis Obispo at the recruiter's office next to the Vons, as I was trying to get to talk to any recruiter. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't know anything. Um, but not, but, a, a couple of months before that, a standing on the beach in Morrow Bay, California, you know, with a couple of women pregnant, neither of which were the women that I was with, with, um, to a degree, uh, I thought I had HIV and, um, Crashed my motorcycle. Patriarch of the family. My grandpa is dying. Every breath that he took from eph- with ephysema was one breath less than the prior breath. And uh, you know, took all my clothes off. I looked out west to the fog, and I just started swimming west. And growing up with an Olympic level water polo player in the family, we can swim. So uh, mo- most of our corporal punishment involved a pool with gallons of water and <laughs> stuff like that. So. You know, knowing what I could swim then, you know, in, in the 45 minutes that I was out there, you know, that's two miles out, you know, I'm two miles out from the beach and um, in the fog now. I can't hear the waves. I can't see the rock, you know, and fog does really weird things to the brain and to sound. Isn't it crazy? It's almost vertigo. Yeah. Yeah loss of uh, orientation totally you, i mean you know which way's up because like i'm floating in water so obviously water's down but that's the only thing that you know you're like i don't know northeast southwest the the the, the light is being refracted in different ways and sound what i think was a wave was that a foghorn you have no idea was that to the i, I swear i heard it to the left but that time i thought i heard it to the right had i rotated 180 degrees in the time that i that thing just went off you know like that's all going on in your brain in the real time and um you know, then you, I heard slapping on the side of a rock or a boat, And then like this low grumbling as a little coast guard cutter cruised up next to me. No kidding. Yeah. This old woman, uh, from what they say, this is hearsay because it was told to me by the captain of the boat. His legs were just hanging off the side of the boat. I'm butt ass naked in the water. I've been swimming for 45 minutes. And he's like, uh, Hey son, what are you doing down there? Like, well, I'm swimming, still, still a, a cocky little shit, and uh, he's like, I, I could see that, and um, he's like, so what's going on? So I, I kind of download to him what's go, what's happening in my life. And he's like, I was going to offer you to pull you out of the water, but truth, I'm just going to leave you in the drink. Like, but I'm going I'm to ask you one time: Do you want to come on this boat, or do you want to stay in the water? And I'm just treading water. Like, what, what a, what a badass, right? Like, what an amazing human to be able to sit there and understand how to talk. To such a disaster of a human and to be able to get through the layers of bullshit to connect and uh he I saw like, you drowning yeah he's, i was he quite quick i
1: mean no pun on words he yep. saw you drowning in life yeah
2: and he's like um so what do you want I'm like man this this water's cold and he like leans up
1: yeah i see that yeah, and uh, that—that's no hit on the Kennedy family. No, it was the no. cold water. Okay, no, it was well, maybe a little bit of
2: both. But I, I finally get up on that boat, and they throw one of those hundred percent wool navy blankets. You know those? Yeah, oh yeah, man, those don't the, feel the, good. There's the itch, yeah, they itch. And when your skin is so cold, it felt like a million needles, and nothing felt better. I wish there was a little, little real steel needles being jabbed in my skin because I was alive and I felt pain, and that was the kind of the beginning of what was going to be some for the first time making choices that were going to change the trajectory to not selfishness and not being an ethnocentric narcissistic (laughs) piece of shit.
1: Well, you've definitely uh, turned it around, but you you, you turned the one still. the, uh, and we all are, we all are the thing, you know, the common thread amongst all the guys we serve with within special operations and i'm, I'm done with talking about green berets and seals and, and marsoc and the afsoc guys they're just special operations studs in all the communities and i love you guys though by the way there's what also great there's there also guys that are that, that didn't perform in special operations but they all had this healthy disrespect for authority this wild side which you have to to do that job yeah there's no way i mean you're asking young men to go forward and kill people on a repetitive deployment schedule, especially with the global war and terror. And, and there's, there's very few humans that are cut out for that. Physically, I, I don't care about it. It's the mental, it's yeah. the mental toughness uh, of that. So you're now, you, you make it through the SFAS, Special Forces Assessment and Selection. You make it through the Q course, and then which group did you report into? I went to seventh group. And um, At Bragg at the time. At Bragg, yep. Now, Now they're in Florida. Yep, they had okay.
2: just come from Puerto Rico. I, I missed that move by just a few months. So they had recently arrived at Fort Bragg. And during my time in the Q course, you know, I was a professional fighter when I enlisted. I was top 10 in the world when I enlisted. And uh, a, a Delta Force, now team sergeant in special forces, John McPhee, John Shrek McPhee. Yes. Man, what an amazing. Yeah. He was a leader, a really hard guy to work for. And um, but a man that I I, I respect. So you had a microscope on you. I did.
1: They did. So they they probably gave you a little more punishment than uh, than most. But
2: but all good, you know. Um, Professional. Yep. Hard but fair. And when Mm -hmm. I graduated, John had intervened and um, there's a, a special operations unit a a counterterrorism hostage rescue unit within special operations within special forces specifically at the time it was called the SIF. Now it's called the CRIF. Um, They've just been moved again to yet another thing. Um, John had earmarked me to go to directly there. Um, So when I graduated, I I checked in and I was trying to go to the first company that was deploying because that's what we want to do. Right. was like, how do I get on the first trip overseas? And um, you know, John was kind of sitting there waiting to usher me into C37, which was the seventh group hostage rescue unit, and um, then go to Iraq
1: with them. And did you hit Sephardic? Yeah. Before yep. that? Okay. Yep. Wow. So you were on a, a fast track?
2: Yeah. Super, yeah un, unreal fast track. Um, a lot of questions about my career like, wait, there's no way that right of the q course you go to Sephardic, you know, and like, well, I, I didn't have a say in it. You know, like I had John McPhee telling me what to do, and my Sergeant Major Oquendo that was like, hey, this is here, here's where you're going. This is, blah, 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 blah. and I was like, you know, you're an E5 out of the Q course. You have no say in any of it. And th- that's kind of the back. Yeah. The backstory. He's,
1: he's, he's legendary. And the yeah. fact that he sort of selected you as a mentee is, is pretty damn uh, awesome. So you go to Iraq. And what year was that? What and where, where were you? That was uh, 2005, 2006. That was, yeah. Bad
2: years. Uh, bad years, unless you're a, a 23, 24 year old Green Beret that just wants to get in fights. You know, um, so you was, loved it. Oh, I loved it. Again, like how naive and how selfish, how undeveloped of an operator, like I, I wanted to be the first one in, in the door, even though I was the least experienced. I wanted to be the first one in the gunfire. I want to be like there. There's a really embarrassing moment in the book that um, you know we lost one of our helicopters. One sixtieth had got shot up, so our our aircraft we had to flex and change our load plans. So John, the team sergeant, is like, okay this little punk of a kid that's six months in special forces, Hey, you're going to be our QRF and a good soldier would have gone and, and made sure the headspace and timing was good. Made sure all the real, the fills and the crypto was set. Like that's what a good, a good green Beret would have done. Instead I was being a whining little bitch being like, John, like I'm the fastest, right? I'm the stud, I'm the one that should be on this. There's no way you're making a bad decision. You need to put me on this helicopter. And he's like, we'll talk about this later. Um, you know, but that deployment. We were part of the Joint Special Operations Command that was yes. hunting our yes. And And uh, we were successful. We, we were support to the main
1: elements. Th- that, that was June of 2006, right? That I was. Believe. Okay. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. So I was, we got I was in, in January and we, we came home in um, August. Now, I know John had a combatus background. So were you guys training? Uh, we trained time? all the time. You and him? Yeah. Well, the whole entire team. Like it was, it was a team requirement. It was part of our PT
2: schedule. So, you know, Monday was prep for range day and combatives. Um, and sometimes like a long ruck Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday were range days, you know, would be whether it was sniper stuff, it was CQB force on force, um, TTP practice. And then Friday was recover from the range. So like Monday and Friday were book bookends of real hard physical training. And Monday, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday were
1: really, really hard range focused days. That was kind of our weekly schedule. So you said when you came in, you were top 10 within your weight class in the world. Did you feel like your skills degraded? Because now you have to focus on so many things. you, You can't dedicate as much time to the combatives. I, I know you're you're you you were passionate about the war. You believed in the cause. Yeah, did, did your skills degrade during that time? Uh,
2: so, in in truth, they did. But in my brain, uh, I it it was didn't. still like the best in the world, yeah. right? Like this is the invincibility and and the cluelessness of of young men. Um, the
1: Dunning Kruger effect, if you yeah. know what that is. I mean, it's a
2: real thing. Yes. It is it, 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 a powerful thing. And that was, of course, reinforced. I was not surrounded by elite level athletes. So when I was in basic training, um, the Ranger Regiment drill sergeant had some of his, you know, as this entire company of, of soon of hope to hoping to be aspiring green berets. He brought in his little ranger regiment cronies and they start talking smack to the, the littlest guy of that were hoping to be SF and, um, luring, trying to elicit a a physical response. And I of course step up to that and I end up like beating the brakes off these three guys while the whole entire company is toes online. I beat three young rangers you know, not kindly cement floor, of course. And, um, you know that feeds the ego in an unhealthy way. And I get to the Q course. And of course I'm the best fighter that like, doesn't there in this tiny little pool of not real, I had I gone back to San Luis Obispo as the sport was just exploding. Um, you know, like I'm just being left behind, but I think in my brain that I'm staying with them, but I, I was being left.
1: And I know you don't have regrets, but as you look back, do you feel like you maybe missed a window within yeah. within the ufc yeah yeah like J- jake Shields and, and
2: chuck won titles and um you know why while i was overseas watching them have the belt thrown around their waist you know and and um those are peers like th- those are my guys and uh like i know what i ha- how i can do with them and i i, I knew where i belonged in, in the pecking order and then watching people that i beat time and time again go on to win titles and i was like what? That guy's a champion now? <laughs> that dude? Like, he came to the pit and I mopped the floor with his soul.
1: You, you had to feel wildly happy for him, though, knowing that, that that was your old tribe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so proud. So, 2006, come back from that deployment. And you continue to deploy, but you, you probably start to get the bug, as you just said. As you're watching guys that you know you're better yep. Then start making it high up into the UFC. Yeah,
2: so I start um, moonlighting for... Lack of a better
1: word. With the the approval of the army? Without the approval of the army.
2: So I would take a pass, um, which a pass is like a vacation leave form for like a 3 day weekend. And I would fly on a Friday morning and I would go weigh in on Fridays for a Saturday night fight. And I did that for about four years. I for I fought for the IFL. I for I fought for the ECC. I fought for um, like a variety of these smaller organizations until I was main event on Fox. This this had worked, where nobody knew that this green beret out of Fort Bragg, North Carolina, as the the title card pops up and says Tim Kennedy, Fort Bragg, North Carolina, U.S. Army Ranger, and of everybody in. North Carolina is like, there are no Rangers in North Carolina. Right.
1: And then the, the media will always screw it up. Yeah. They yeah. messed it up. They messed it up for me. So, you know, like I, so you backing up, you, you hadn't informed the command and that comes out on the media. Yeah. Oh yeah. So you're called in. Yeah. I,
2: I got, well, my leave ended on Sunday. So I, that meant that I had to be at work on Monday morning. So on Monday morning at call time for PT, you know, it's, it's Staff Sergeant Kennedy here. And uh, like, of course I'm here. you know, like, my leave ended on Sunday. Like I never, I never like really broke rules, but I like, just kind of like, wee, 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 wee. and um, so they're like, you need to go to USASOC to talk to the Sergeant Major. I'm like, Oh, no,
1: so you skipped your, your, your battalion, your group, and went straight to USASOC, which I mean, for the I, listeners is the United yeah, States Army Special, Special Operations, Operations Command, command, command yeah. which is the overarching command for all Army Special Operations unit units. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Wow. Special treatment for a special guy. <clears throat> yeah. Well, everyone
2: between me, my team sergeant, and up to USASOC CSM, they were all present for said meeting because they also had all been notified that Tim Kennedy is not an Army Ranger. He was a Green Beret attached to a special operations unit within special forces. And he was just live main event on Fox. So that was fun. They, they
1: stood you at attention and dressed you down?
2: Um, I mean, I would had my, my ass chewed out before this was more truthfully a honest strategic conversation of can these things coexist can you be a main event pay-per-view a main event fox world title challenger level fighter and be part of a unit whose motto is the quiet professionals uh there's rhetorical that's, question that's a, good, that's
1: a great dilemma it's a,
2: it's a good it's, it's a good problem to have and
1: a problem so that was a tough, so you basically forced them into a, I didn't force them. <laughs> they, they, they had to come up with, uh, I guess protocol for future. They did. Yeah. SF soldiers who wanted to engage in yep. okay.
2: A lot of great positive things came from that. You know, there, there's been a lot of athletes and video game guys that have been able to do, do things simultaneously. Uh, and
1: are you referring to the special forces guy that was on the army, uh, video game team? Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, that's great.
2: He even said it. Like I helped pave pave the way for them to be successful in that. But at the time, there was
1: no road to be paved. It was catastrophic. From a commander standpoint, I I I couldn't see any reason they looked at you and said, "Hey, well done, son." But now we're going to get our pound of flesh a little bit yep. because you didn't inform us yeah. and you never let your, your command get surprised yeah. by anything, but no, nope. well played. Yeah. I, and they do it too. They're like, how many, how many kids, how many 18 year olds are enlisting into the 18 x-ray pro- program because of Tim alone?
2: Yeah, it was, it was insane. I mean, it was, uh, what they were spending on, on marketing, recruiting efforts, like NASCAR, you know, I, I could go out there and say one sentence, like, Man, if you want to go bleed with brothers, I know some guys that you can come come bleed with, and Absolutely. they would come in droves, droves. And um, you know, because I'm like a heart on the sleeve type guy. Like there, there's there's no stick with me. Like you just you got transparency, you got real, you got honest. It's like when when they'd put a camera in front of me and a microphone in my face and ask me a question, they would get the truth.
1: So, and again, what year was that? The that was uh, 2007. 2007 in. You left active duty in 2009, is that correct? Yep, end of 2009, 2010. Because you just couldn't pa- pass up this opportunity. You were climbing the ranks. Yeah. You you now the UFC's I'm back to rank number 10 in the world. Um the two
2: organizations that the or three organizations there were Spr- Pride, mm-hmm. Strike Force and the UFC. Those were the three large organizations. Pride was predominantly in Japan. Mm-hmm. Strike Force was the number one competitor to the UFC. And, um, and both pride and strike force, the phone was, was ringing off the hook. You know, I was undefeated in the IFL, um, and had beaten really well-known people. Dominated. And I was
1: like, yeah, what do we do this guy? And when you left active duty, did you move directly over to the guard or did you take a break?
2: No, I moved. Actually, I went, <laughs> this is if you want to, if you want to get super army, this, this is the, the dumbest, lamest things ever where they for, had they left me alone. I would have stayed an E6, an E7, an E8, whatever, active. active, and I would have trained and I would have done my job and they would have just left me alone and they would have paid me what an E6 and E7 and E8 makes, right? Pennies. Um, instead, they forced my hand like, you, these, are, these are mutually exclusive things. You can't do them at the same time. So I went to the National Guard. The National Guard put me on active duty recruiting orders so I stayed active duty for another three years. So I, I stayed active from you know, 2004 to 2014. And, um, and they paid me hundreds of thousands of dollars to recruit for them. To do the exact same thing that I pretty much would have done for absolutely free. Just because I just wanted to fight and I wanted to be part of the regiment. And I thought those two things could coexist. And they said that they couldn't. But then when they forced it, I was like...
1: All right. It, it, it's that old school mentality, even within special operations. It's still there. It's still there. I, I, you know, I like to think we're getting better. Yeah. We're getting smarter. That, it, Look at it this way. I guarantee, you know, you joined special forces because of some movie or maybe you met a special forces soldier and you're like, that guy is just squared it's away. two movies. Two movies. Yeah. Which were they? It was
2: The Green Beret with John, John Wayne. John Wayne, which is, yep. yeah, the classic. Yep. Green Berets and uh,
1: Rambo. Rambo, yeah, come on. Yeah. I mean, do you blast your jean boots? Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> yeah. And for the, <sighs> the, the audience, there are no Rambo. Don't so shoot down that yeah. Russian high. Yeah, no, Those are, those are two good movies. I mean, they're second and third to Navy SEALs with Charlie Sheen, but no doubt. we're, not, we're not going gun. there. What, you know, what trumped them all was uh, Top Gun. Oh, Every, yeah. Everyone wanted to be a uh, fighter pilot.
2: I want to be a fighter pilot. And when Top Gun, the new one comes out, I'm going to want to be a fighter pilot again. I'll be like, yeah,
1: that's the best. I, he, he, I, 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 you know, outside of being a JTAC, you know, I never really was surrounded by fighter pilots, but I do remember, uh, was it Fallon where, where the JTAC school yep. was? And, you know, I'm by myself and, and I go into a bar. I'm like, hey, I'm just going to have a drink. And I come in and I've got a, uh, you know, the military calls it to cover. And all these guys in flight suits, which let's be honest, flight suits, flight suits are just lame. They're not cool. No, no, no. Nobody they looks cool. No. cool. Yeah. What do you call them? A poop shoot or yeah, something? Like that. They're not so, cool. They're not cool. You know, cool. they're drunk and they see me come in and uh, I'm wearing a cover and they're like, Hey, you got to buy everyone in the bar a drink. And it was one of my O2. So I'm not making that much. I've got, you know, two kids. Yeah. Uh, and there's 30 of them. I'm like, no, I'm not buying you a drink. And they start to like crowd around me. And like, I was just like, leave me alone. Enjoy your alcohol. Yeah. I'm not buying you a drink. I don't know what your customs and courtesies are. And I night. don't care. Yeah. And, and I don't care, frankly. So as you're still on the recruiting duty, you're pretty much focused full time on Yeah, fight. I'm fighting.
2: I, I had some responsibilities going to um, national guard, special operations, recruiting events, going to high school sometimes and some public speaking, going to some athlete events, but it was, it was real low level. Like they gave me a lot of time and you know, huge kudos to the guard. They, they would let me go to real fight camps like Jackson's. They would let me go like um, had, we, we were trying to work where I could go to, with the Olympic training team and train with them, the world athlete program in Colorado. We we're looking at all of those options and and they were really being accommodating for, to ensure success.
1: It was cool. Hey, the fact that you trained with uh, Greg Jackson and, and just uh, a set of fighters that are again, at your level, just world-class yeah. that have defined the sport. Uh, we're we're going to get into that, but Uh, Before we do, we're going to take a uh, a first break and we end our breaks with what we call hard questions. Again, where it comes back to this vulnerability, the hardest decision you've ever had to make.
2: Man, um, you said something over there when we're talking, you have children of different ages. Um, I have young children that I help coach coach lacrosse and I'm there for soccer and I'm there for basketball. You know, my two-year-old burnt her leg when she pulled hot spaghetti. And how horrific is it that we know how to treat children with bad burn wounds? You're like, but we know how to do that. Yes. And I mean, that's horrible. And I hope no none of you ever have to. I'd rather be
1: prepared than not prepared. Yeah. yeah.
2: But like how many times have I treated badly burnt children? I don't know how many times. So when she got burned, I was like, boom, I knew exactly what to do. But I was there. My big girls in college, I miss their entire entire childhood. Deployments, sniper school, ranger school, deployments. Like just the list goes on of what is required of us. And all of those things are away. So my, my, biggest regret, my, my biggest
1: regret is being away. Not being there. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people lose sight, they, you know, what, only 1% serves in the military these days. And I'm not saying that in the negative, uh, you know, light. But what they don't realize is that, you know, it's usually the wives and the kids that pay the price. Yeah. yeah. It, it truly is because we want to be over there. And it is very selfish yeah, in a in way. There. Like
2: I want to be in a fight, yes. you know, like, and and you know better when I wouldn't go and the teams would go and something would happen and all the things that happened explode in our brain. Like, had I been there, would it have been different? Like they got jumped. Would I not have had security? Like in in the con op and in, in the concept of the operation plan, like what I have seen as you know, with my experience that had they done this, it would have circumvented this, this horrible thing that happened like, and, and that what if
1: thing just goes on and on because we weren't there. And you say you want to be in a fight. And again, it's, you're not out in Austin in the public knocking people out. You're talking about you wanted to be in a fight where there was a purpose. Yeah. Where evil had attacked us. Purpose. And going to war with evil, which exists, is not a bad thing. I think a lot no, of people- It's a beautiful put, thing. It is, a, it, is, it is beautiful. Even You want to go deep into the Bible. Even in the Bible, they, they, they tell you to strike down your enemies yeah. if, if they are of ill intent. Hardest thing you've ever had to face-
2: the consequences of my own decisions you know the um it's so it's when you look back it's so easy right that the titanic was headed towards the iceberg and how they just turned it 1 degree it would have missed the whole entire thing early enough you know how did they turn it 2 degrees yeah you know and they would have missed it so much so much easier and and when you when you you're just a train wreck hitting iceberg after iceberg. And at any point you're sitting there at the helm and you can make every one of those decisions, but you don't out of stubbornness or ego. And, um, so the hardest thing I ever had to face was just the consequence of standing there, continuing to make the wrong decisions. And, you know, and that went, you know, like I, I, I battle that today, you know, I'm a super imperfect human that still makes bad decisions, but the ones earlier were, were close to being catastrophic. If you go
1: back and and trace I'm sure you would agree with this. For every bad decision in my life or every bad outcome, I was in 100% control of all my outcomes. Yeah. It was, you trace it. It was ego. Uh, you know, it was just some bad attribute. It, I'm the cause of all my problems yeah. in life. Yeah. I mean, not to steal J- Jocko
2: Willink, but he's hundred percent that- right. Yeah. J- I don't know this Jocko dude. Uh, the extreme ownership when it comes to failure there is one of my favorite things about grappling is when you stand there, there's you and me, right? he's going to raise your hand and I'm going to stand there in shame and humiliation for the loss. And there's no one else on the mat. Yeah. There's no one else to point to as an excuse. There's no, there's no other reason for failure besides me. And, and, and that's a great opportunity on the mats to get a, a snapshot of kind of who and what you are, but that applies to everything, right? There's those failures. You are exclusively the onus a responsibility for the cause of that decision
1: we in after the break we're, we're going to get back into that uh with victimhood and, and which is as much a pandemic as uh as covid yeah. or i should say epidemic within uh within the united states yeah hey, with that uh we'll be right back we're back with uh with tim kennedy uh renaissance man ufc fighter army special forces green beret uh business owner uh, the list keeps going on how many businesses now
2: I own Holy is seven, but I own 12 businesses that, that I sit on boards or. Oh, that's man. pretty cool.
1: I mean, I own 14. That's, yeah. no, that's good, man. I'm yeah, glad you're up and coming. It's like 11 too many though, because you have time for one. You just robbed me. I, I know my wife's looking at me. She's like, and you have two companies and you're, you're, you're bitching about time. Yeah. So you, you just screwed me. You know, man, I, I remember back in the UFC days in, it was almost like you were representing all of us. Unless you, unless you lost and then we're like, hey, that guy's yeah, a chump. Yeah, screw that guy. No. But it, it, I wanted to ask you a specific question because one of, one of the, the observations is, is you almost, one, you weren't a hype guy where a lot of guys just talk. And I know that's part, it, it, it is showmanship. Yeah. But even in the, 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 the octagon, when you're getting ready for a fight, it was almost this calm demeanor, this like stoic look. Where other people are trying to. Well, you know like. that
2: look because you walk down
1: the halls of giants and you see it every day. But it, did that come from your time in,
2: yeah. in special operations? Yeah. I, I remember wanting to throw up before fights. I, I remember like shaking as Chuck Liddell standing there be like, Tim, we got to go. This is your time to shine. You know, I'm like, I don't know if I can walk. My legs won't work. And then you get in some gunfights and you're walking out to the octagon. There's a referee whose sole purpose is to protect me. And there's a guy with padded hands. This this is a different thing that can never be compared. You know, I know Joe Rogan gets out there and he's like, these guys are in a war and for a fight, it's a war. Yeah. But having seen war, you know, intimately well, that that is not even equatable to being anywhere near in the vicinity of similar. So when I was going out to fight, you know, I was like, the, the, the biggest weight on my shoulders was that I felt, that I was representing the military, and no, nobody put that on me, but I felt it all the time. And uh, there was no other nerves about is this guy going to hurt me? There's nothing that
1: guy can do to hurt me, you know. Like this is just a fight. So I, I do remember your, your wife's name is Ginger. Oh yeah, right. Um, basically, to paraphrase, if I can remember that you were, you were, I don't want to say miserable, but horrible to be around in the final week, if not yeah. uh, days, yep. leading into a fight.
2: Yeah, super focused um, yeah, again, military, like they, they, when I got to Jackson's, you know, he told me to, to show up at nine o'clock to hit mitts with Brandon. And I got there at eight 50. Cause if you're there on time, you're 10 minutes late, you know? So I got there at eight I'm warmed up. My hands are wrapped and Brandon and Gray walk in at like nine 20. And they're like, what are you doing here? I'm like, I'm warmed up. Let's go. And like, what time did you get here? I'm like 850? What time did I tell you to be here? Nine. It just couldn't compute they had been running fighters for so long. Like that's just how we operated. (laughs) So, um, and I, I took that into everything that I did. And like, you, you, you know, When you're about to step out the door, um, when you're about to load onto a helicopter, when you're putting those fills in, you're doing the final checks, you checked all your batteries, you know, you put the round in the chamber on your pistol, your secondary You put round in the chamber, your rifle for your primary, right? You do one more check, your nods, make sure they're in the right place. You put them back up. You are in the zone. Well, that zone in fighting lasts like two weeks. And so I, I was joking with, with your wife. Um, no, no, it was, uh, the British anyways they're like British guy yeah you You're Tom so Over uh to you. your wife like she uh she, she like was happy with all this I'm like no no she just hated me less at these times than I hated myself um so like that's how we were able to survive these fight camps was she just had to deal with me for these little periods before I went and destroyed somebody and then it all
1: worked out so I, I do remember your mantra in training was hurry up and fail yeah Wait, just explain that yeah, I see. There's everybody. John
2: Jones, what an incredible champion and a talented, great example of absolute pure perfection of violent balance of uh, the the violence that can be done by him looks like a ballet and poetry. But he's a horrible human, you know, like domestic violence, drugs, DUIs um, like that doesn't just because he's good and a, and a high level of a performer never made him a great human or a teammate with me trying to be a good human, be a good teammate, and be a, a champion, these were really hard things to, to reconcile. And I, I honestly couldn't ever find the right balance of
1: figuring out how to do it. And I'm, I'm assuming that is carried over into the business world. Is yeah, you, you, you just again, 12 companies, you've just it's it's rapid iteration learn as you go. Yep. Fail, learn, move yep. on. So the, the
2: hurry up and fail specifically, both in business and in fighting, how having to reconcile all those things, just, just, I'm going to use this really, really simple metaphor in fitness. When, when we're lifting the way that muscle gets stronger, ultimately is the damage done through failure. And wh- whether it's hypertrophy or, or the, the single gains, every one of those failure points, the body responds an adaptation to making the body be able to do something in that modality a little bit more effectively. So if you're a marathon runner, you look vastly different than a power lifter. Well, their modality is different and their adaptation to to get past the thing that they're doing to their body is different. So that's what hurry up and fail is. Whatever your modality is, you have to force your body to adapt to get better. Whether that's in business, in fighting, I, would, I, I wouldn't rush. I didn't want to fail, but I knew that... At the failure point is when I still get better, faster, and stronger.
1: It's part of the process. Yes, it is part of the process. There's no way that you can.
2: There's no way to get past
1: it. You have to do it. We're going to get into mental health, but the same thing applies. If a a muscle is left unused, atrophy sets in, dies. Much like the mind. Much like the mind. Let me. So twelve businesses, and I know you're highly successful and I'm not, I'm not asking for your tax return here, and I don't even want to discuss that, but there is no reason you need to be serving right now to take care of your family and then some. None. Yet in 2017, you went back to special forces. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and I know you're you're still actively employed, and we'll leave it there, doing good work.
2: Why? I mean, it's the greatest job in the world, surrounded by the greatest humans to ever walk the face of this planet. And... uh You you said it. You surround yourself with the best. You surround yourself with the brightest. You surround yourself with the fastest, the strongest. Your level has to be raised because you're around them. Um, So like every day that I'm in a uniform, I'm losing tens of thousands of dollars. The moment I put on that uniform, the time that is spent for me to keep my currencies and, and all the different things that we have to keep currencies in, tens of thousands of dollars are being lost in what is happening in my other world, my, my business world. Um, so the, the monies can't be equated, but the value is priceless. There's no way that you can put a price on being on the team's. Until the day that I die or the day that they kick me off, no matter how much it costs, that is the place that I want to be. Not because I deserve to be there, because I don't, because they're all better than me. It's not because like I have a sense of entitlement because I, I pass these things that I that I have a right to be there because I don't, because every single one of those men are better than me at everything that they do, because that's the one place that I want to be. Like they're the best humans on the planet.
1: The most powerful tribe I've ever been a part of. Yeah. And, and I think since you've had the luxury of, you know, leaving and then going back, you, you understand that. But when you're yeah. in it for 20 years straight, you're like, oh, man, I'm tired of this. Yeah. And then when you leave it, you're like, I had the best job in the world because I am a product of my tribe. Yeah. My strength came from my team. 100%. I never did anything by myself. Even with, the, you know, the books I've written and I've got two books in the works. It's with buddies, yeah. I couldn't, I, I couldn't see it any other way. I mean, you're, you're doing your autobiography. It's an autobiography that needs to be written. And, and I totally understand that, but yeah, but even with that, uh, Nick Palmisciano, uh, West point
2: ranger. Um, he's on the cover. Like with yes. every yeah. moment that I missed, every time that I walked out of that octagon, I took my, ro- my gloves off and I threw them in the trash, not even a second thought about the wraps or the gloves that, you know, I, I just won my seventh in a row and they know I'm going to fight for the world title. You know, like, that means nothing to me. Like the banner, it's in the trash. Um, you know, the, the the handwritten note from Mike Tyson. Like, that was an amazing moment. Cool. I left that in the locker. My best friend, Nick, went and pulled it out of the trash. He went and pulled that banner and rolled it back up and put it in his check on, check-in on check bag. Then he walked into the trash and he, he shuffled through it all and he found that card. And, you know, and that's the guy that um, is, I'm writing this book with because every moment that
1: I so recklessly wasted and he was there for. And you're very much with a lot of your companies. Some of your companies are 100% veteran yep. staffed.
2: Yeah. hundred percent. That's right. Um, they don't, they don't have to be, um, you know, in the, in the even in the, I was begging and pleading for your help this morning. I was like, man, I am, I have 3 full-time positions I'm trying to fill right now. And I want to fill them with people that want to be part of a team that want to be part of an organization and I'm doing everything that I can, but they make it so hard, but how do I do it? Like, how do I do it? Mike, you know, like yesterday I was, I was texting with Jared and I was asked Evan Hay for the same questions. Like how do we find the right minds and to be able to have the right people,
1: but still be able to give back to the veteran community, which is the most impo- important community in my life. And man, it's hard. It, it's not easy when it comes to the game of talent. It, it's hard. And uh, quite frankly, that's why my company's called the talent. More group and, <laughs> and even though we've gotten very good at it I mean when you're dealing with humans you are dealing with the biggest variable there is yeah. and humans are freaking crazy and somebody will sell well in an interview then get into the job role and be a complete utter bottom feeder and yeah. you gotta get rid of them that sucks so it actually leads me and in, in, in I know you got a lot of flack for this and uh, the, the quote on Facebook where you basically said for, for combat veterans with PTSD to, to stop being pussies but you went on and people missed the, the rest of the message. Yeah. They just focused on that. Yeah, but sound
2: bites are always the worst part, you know. Don't cut this up to yeah, make me look like I don't like know a if idiot. you do this, but I'm also anti-gun.
1: Yes, Yeah. yes, so of course. I, I, I didn't know that either. But. T- tell me what you were, in I know this is leading into victimhood. Yep. What, so, what was the point you were trying to make?
2: Resiliency, durability, all of those things happen through strength. Oh, look at this, look at this guy. Uh, me up with the we, we've got coffee coming yeah
1: delivered directly. you're
2: about to see something a problem that my wife hates me for
1: coffee at uh close to 7 uh, p.m
2: that is delicious good. all right so entitlement victimhood they're diseases and they're diseases that erode the 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 ability to make a choice to get better and when i say stop being a pussy you have to at some point even if you if you're incapable of doing it yourself, the choice has to be made for me to say, Mike, I'm in a bad place. I need help. Okay. Maybe I can't get to the gym. Maybe I can't put down that bottle of alcohol. Maybe I can't even put down that gun. But at some point, a choice has to be made for an, for that trajectory not to hit the the Titanic, not to hit the iceberg. That shift has to be made, and that's a choice. And the victim mentality, the entitlement mentality, you will stay that same trajectory. You will stay that same as because you,
1: it becomes easy. Yeah, and you get attention so for, for the wrong reasons. You, so, I, I had the pleasure of interviewing, and you probably know this guy, General Jerry Boykin, who at one point, well, one, one of the very early members of Delta Force.
2: Yeah, he's uh, pretty rad.
1: Yeah, badass. And then he was the commanding general of USASOC. Um And he talked about this emotional intimacy amongst the the the, the teammates, the operators at Delta Force. And when, he, when I was interviewing him, I'm, I'm, I thought he was messing with me. But he explained it. He said, hey, you know, because yeah. he saw me smirking. He was like, let me explain it to you, Mike. And he, he broke out the crayons uh, in which all <laughs> like, my, my, this one. my book manuscripts are all written in crayons. And then I give it to somebody very smart so that they can uh, put it into to type for me. Um, he said, if I came to you in tears over the loss of a teammate, what you do? I said, I'd wrap my arms around him and say, hey, we're going to get through this. And it was true. And he was, he was talking about culture, the culture that exists. And, and, and as we hear about toxic masculinity, I think people get that wrong. Yeah. And you were, I mean... You are very much, and I think the, the audience would agree, the, the definition of a man. Yet again, you still have that empathy. Everyone has a grieving process and everyone deals with trauma differently. And and that's their right. But it seems to be coming an epidemic where people want to stay in that victimhood category. And you know, for the life of me, I can't figure out why that is happening. I, I understand it's the easy thing to do because the next hard step to, to, to recover or to get better or improve. It's hard. Yeah, it's work, man.
2: Um, You and I have every excuse that they have. We've been blown up. We've lost friends, like physically damaged and irreparably. We're at a place where um, the VA is like, you guys are jacked, right? And the list goes on and it's the exact same list that they have. And you cannot ever compare trauma, whether it be physically or emotional or mental, um, because it's different for every single human. But the thing that is true amongst all of them and where it's even is for it to get better. It takes work and that work is lots of different choices, are losses and choices. And if you're a victim and you're entitled, those choices will never be made. You will never rush to failure. You'll never get up and start exercising. You'll never put down the bag of potato chips. You'll never sit down the bottle of alcohol. You'll never go to night, good night's sleep. You're not gonna be a good father to your children. You're not gonna be a good lover to your wife. The list goes on and on and on, but ultimately, there are millions of little decisions that are both preventative for post traumatic stress or they're healing. The, the best thing that you can do for yourself is to start being a healthy human. Like maybe you need medication, but that still takes work for you to get up and go to the doctor and be transparent and be real and be like, yeah, I need help. Talking to a friend, that is a choice. And that takes work for me to talk to somebody and say, man, I'm really struggling with this. And all of that takes work. And the victim mentality and the entitled mentality is a direct, those are exclusive things. If you have that mentality, you will never start having that change for
1: better and that's what i was saying there is like stop being pussies there is so mental health is arguably a a big issue right okay. now not only within america but but internationally yeah and there are more resources for people to utilize to get better it's you just have to take that that step and, and again you, you know for listeners with mental health it is actually very manly just to to raise your hand and say yeah i need Dude, it's fine last week last week one of my brothers Raised his hand,
2: called you, and I asked. It was going to be a a big undertaking, and I I I asked my peers. I was like, "Hey, man, can we go and do this?" Every single one. I'm not talking like a couple of guys. I'm saying every single person there was like, "Oh, I'm in. I'm I'm coming. I'm helping." There was not a, a moment of hesitation. There wasn't any reservation. There was no judgment. It was that is a brother that needs help, and I am in to help that person. But that dude still had to
1: raise his hand. Yes. And and I know for a lot of people too, it's look at your environment. If you need to remove yourself from an environment and and God knows, you know, when I, when I, so my last tour was actually here in Austin, my last two years. And, uh, I was freshly divorced and I just started drinking and I was going to the bars quite a bit and and there was a point where I'm like, I need to remove myself from this environment. And and quite frankly, I met a, a great woman that helped do that as well as a, uh, mental health, uh, you know, uh, psychologist who is renowned within the special operations community, a guy named Dr. Chris Free, who actually coined the term operation or operator syndrome. And this guys in Hawaii didn't charge me every week on the phone for two to three hours until he's like, Mike, we're, we're, you know, you're going to be okay and, and moved on. And, and, I, and I owe her and I owe him for, for that time. Before we get to uh, questions for the audience, I want to get into two things. So now, UFC fighter, Green Beret, business owner, school founder. Yeah. And this is huge in elementary school here in Cedar park, adding middle school this year, this spring. And you teamed up with acting for that. That's right.
2: Yep. Why? And what, what is the
1: general charter of the school?
2: Yeah. So, um, going back to a child in private school with my parents, I ended up having to be homeschooled because I had teachers that would duct tape me to chairs. I had teachers. I would go to the principal's office every single week and I would be spanked. Like this is a different era. You know, like this is not 2021, 2022. I'm talking when hitting a kid, I had wrestling coaches that would hit me. Um, There was nothing wrong with me. I was a normal six-year-old boy, totally normal. Like that one has to be medicated. We won't even let him come back to this school unless you have a prescription and we know that he is taking this, you know, ADHD like poison. And um, there's nothing wrong with me as there's nothing wrong with any of the heroes that are in our school that look just like me at six years old. So I saw the writing on the wall four years ago. It was actually with Jocko and Jocko was like, we're we're talking about recruiting within special operations and how difficult it is right now for us to find young men men it's a it's a special beautiful thing just like being a feminine beautiful woman and I realize that there's spectrums on both of those and those scales go back and forth but we in the special operations community we have to have men. We have to have ones that will run towards the sound of gunfire, ones that can do violence on behalf of their country. The ones that without a moment of hesitation will jump on top of a grenade to protect the men to their left and to their right. That is what a man will do. And that is beautiful masculinity. And I saw that being eroded in society. And and, and Jocko is like, well, what are you going to do? And I was like- A challenge almost. Yeah. I'm going to start school. I said it on his podcast. And then I- it Then it took three and a half years for me to organizationally structure in in a very uh, strategic way, a school that is not impenetrable, but we are the way that we are set up, it's very, very difficult for any governing body to come in and deal with anything that we do. So we're a Socratic Acton school. It's a learner-driven environment. Um, Socratic learner-driven, that yes. means the students, which we call heroes, they're in charge of the... St- not even a classroom. We call them studios. So our heroes in that studio, they're the ones driving the train. And if they want to be bouncing on balls while they do their homework or doing jump rope, I don't care as long as they do their work. You know, like it is their journey and it is their process and whatever their individual process is to be able to produce real learning. That's the goal. And that's what we say. All all that is required of you is that you want to walk through these doors to learn. And that is uh, what happens in that school. And that is what is not happening in all other schools as they're forcing mandates, doing this do like curriculum, stu- school unions are getting... That has nothing to do... With the total lack of critical thinking in yeah, development. With a child needing to learn how to critically think. And that's all that we do is empower them to learn how to think.
1: Well, I, I would encourage our listeners to, to look that up. And the name is... Apogee. Apogee Cedar Park. Okay. That's. Uh, I have no doubt that more of uh, of those models are going to pop up throughout the uh, the United yep. States. I'm trying to buy a big, huge campus in Cedar Park. So if anybody's selling hundreds of acres, give uh, give Tim a call. He's easy to find. Well, I mean, you basically gave your your address when you ended up on the ISIS list. Yeah, my wife left me for that for a couple of weeks because. Uh you went on, was it Fox News yeah, it and Fox. gave your, your address? Yeah. I, I'm actually not, I, I'm less worried about ISIS, more worried about the, the groupies that were, were <laughs> yeah, parking outside your... I should have thought that one through though, because <laughs> my wife was real mad. What, yeah. you, I, when I saw that, I was, I was proud. I, I was actually hurt that I didn't end up on the ISIS list.
2: I know, but like the... So as a Texan, you know, as, as a Green Beret, as a fighter, when the FBI was on my doorstep and they're like, hey man, they're actively recruiting... Somebody in Texas to come and find you. I was like, no, they're not. <laughs> Tell me more. And they're like, no, no, you are not understand. They love me. They yeah, really I love me. It. It. <laughs> it is so good. And like, I like, you're not getting. I was like, no, no, I totally got it. That I have been traveling for 15 years of my life and been away yeah. from my my now grown children, trying to hunt these people. And you're telling me they're about to come to my door in Texas. Pardon my erection, but this is great news.
1: Fantastic stuff here. Okay, go on. You know. uh, not, not well thought out by ISIS. No. Not well thought out. So before we get to audience questions, uh, you know, one, I, I'm excited. In, bro, you got to hook me up with an early copy of the book. Uh, Scars and Stripes, an unapologetically American story of fighting the Taliban, UFC warriors. And I love this last part and myself. Yeah. What What do uh, you, you know, what do the, the readers hope to discover in that book?
2: Man, I, I'm not throwing stones writing a book is, is, is a, is a really cool thing to do. And in 20 years on terror, there's been a lot of books. Um, this book's not like, any- so there
1: I was surrounded in grenade pins, yeah, holding the enemy at bay by myself. Yeah. Yeah. That's
2: not this book. Yeah, I know. No, this, this book is vulnerable. It's real. Um, it's every single, I mean, it, scars and stripes. How do you get a stri- stripe as an NCO? You earn it. You earn you it. That's right. Yeah. And then how do you get scars by earning it? That's right. <laughs> exactly. So mistakes, failures, time and earning that, that is, that is the point of this book. That's the title of this book. It's the process in which I failed in every single juncture, uh, decision mo- moment of my life. I failed and I failed over and over and over and over again. The only problem with my, my failures is they're televised in front of millions and they were, or they cost lives.
1: Um, that sucks, but that's the story it, it, this sounds like a book that I know as a parent you'd want your teenager to to, to probably read I know you're gonna, you, you got very vulnerable I'm assuming in this book yeah, it yeah. opened up things that that people have not previously known
2: nope um, even people that were involved with those eras. I wrote the book in first person and you know this it's not like a memoir of like and then I went back and you know it was As I'm looking at the dust settling as a van rolled over on the 101 and I'm hearing screams in every direction, I don't know whether to run to the three year old that is grasping for a breath that's about to die or that woman who I see has a compound fracture of her femur and her leg is a bone is sticking out of her flesh. Um, That's how I wrote it. Uh, so there's a lot of vulgarity because I tried to write it exactly as I remember it and how it happened um, in the first person in present tense. Real. Yeah. yeah.
1: So it's, it's a raw, raw, raw book. And, and can people, I, I know that's due out in June, is yep. that correct? June 7th. But they can pre-sales are going on on right Amazon. Now. Yeah. Out on okay.
2: everything. Yeah. Everywhere books are sold, you can get it right now.
1: And, and we will definitely be covering that within men's journal when it comes out. And again, we, we didn't really cover sheepdog and, and I know, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions that, well, Tim's just trying to teach people to, to be violent. That's, that's not, you, that you don't see the world through rose-colored glasses. You know that evil exists. And I, I know you're helping people be prepared, which is the greatest thing, yeah. to do violence, to protect themselves and their families. And that's what it's truly about. It's- yeah, or, or even hopefully have the
2: whereabouts to not even ever have to be in violence. Exactly. You know, But the only way to not go to war is to be prepared for war. You know, you don't look at a weak, pathetic fragile country and be like, Oh, I don't want to invade that and take their great country. No, you look at a powerful
1: country and be like, I don't want to go in there. Yeah. We, we, we know that to be true. Well, at this point, we're going to open it up to the audience. We've, we've got a mic walking around, please. If you got questions, let them fly. Hey gentlemen, thanks for, thanks for all that you, you do. Uh, we, I've met both of you. Appreciate again, everything you've done. I,
2: Tim, for you, uh, we've worked together briefly, you know, from a guy outside looking in, oftentimes you get the misconception of being that 20 to 25 year old guy, but I can tell you that the time that I've worked with you, particularly in the last, i say 12 months, six months, I've seen this humility that I did not know existed. And it probably,
1: I don't, I would like to hear more about that, right? Like what, what are the, some, some of the things that you've done and seen that caused that humility?
2: Yeah. Um, Man, I have so much shame. Uh, I have so much, like I don't live in regret, but I, like I, I have stomach-churning shame thinking back to the way that I talked to my superior or the way that I talked to my team sergeant, to my team leader, and it was just was naive, childish words out of ignorance, not knowing what to say or or what to do, and um, you know, I, th- I think back to to being, I mean. I, hid and stealing from one of my best friend's parents. And like every one of those shameful moments, like eats at me today, you know, and, um, Brandon, Brandon and I, we, we were working on the evacuation of Americans and our allies in Afghanistan. And, um, you want to talk about pain, man, how many people didn't you get out?
1: Wait, 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 But how many people did you get out? I
2: know but that's not like 15,000. You're making me fucking cry, man. Fuck you. You know, um, it's not the success that, that gives you hum- humility. You know, it's thinking about the times that you could have done it better. It's thinking about the ways that I could have been a better teammate. It's thinking about the ways that I could have been, I could have saved one more life. I could have, could I have gotten one more body on that plane? Would that plane still have taken off every one of those failure points? cause humility. And man, I failed. Man, I failed and I failed and I failed and I failed and I failed. I wish I was an e- egotistical prick because like that meant that I wouldn't have failed as much. But what you have now is a man that has failed and I'm still here. It, but
1: this, this is the common thread of high performers that I've seen. They never celebrate their successes. There's a picture of Dan Gable in the 1972 Olympics where he's got a gold medal around his uh, neck yeah, I know. And it's he basically. looks like he's he looks like he feels he failed. He's pissed. And, and to give more context to the listeners there, I don't think he had a single point scored against him in the Olympics. Nope. And he's already going through his personal self-reflection of if I didn't pin somebody, I exposed myself to more risk by being on that map. Why yeah. didn't I pin, pin him? What opportunities? And again, I'm asking, how many did you, the lives did you save? Was it fifteen to seventeen thousand? Is that we correct? did uh, twelve thousand in ten days. And since then
2: Um, we have done another 4,000. Uh, so we're at 16,000 and, uh, we have a manifest that is, we have work working right
1: now as we talk. I I speak for all the listeners and I know that's, that's never going to be good enough for you, Uh, but from all of us to all of you that were there making that happen. Thank you. And I know that that that's just, it falls so short. You guys should be so proud. I know we were watching it happen and now I'm on the sidelines. I'm a, I'm a civilian and I'm proud to be that you guys are out there doing that. And I guarantee there's, as you said, 16,000 people that are grateful that you did that. A lot more to do. A lot more, there always is. A long episode, but it was worth it and lots to talk about and a lot of things we uh, we didn't cover. But uh, before we say goodbye, we, we do like to end this podcast with a few questions of our own. And okay. again, this gets deep, man. How's Tim Kennedy going to measure his life and whether he lived it well? Is how much I was able to give back. I will
2: die penniless. You know, I will, I will not take a single cent to the grave with me and it will do nothing for me in heaven. So what can I do with what I have? Uh, Whether that be influence, clout, um, how can I use a big social media presence to 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 raise funds for things that matter how How can I give back to the military community that has has given me so many tools to give me success? I wouldn't have any success without the military because they they taught me and shaped me into to being who I am and and what I do so success for me is watching my children that that my legacy grow on to be contributing members of society and good citizens and then being able to know that. With everything that I, I earned, I'm able to, to do meaningful things to the, to the
1: communities that I worked for and with. Impact. That's got to be one of the most common answers. Again, interviewing high performers, it's, it's, they, care about, they don't care about the accolades, the medals, the money. Yeah. It's the impact. And we were talking about this earlier in the day because, you guys, we did a workout with Tim in which he broke me. And, That's not true. And, you know, he broke it. me and my wife said, well, I guess Tim likes to beat up on 100% disabled veterans now. Um, yeah, there we big go. man, but no, no, no. We talked about Alexander the great said, Hey, bury me with my hands outside the grave to show that I came into the world with nothing. And I would leave with nothing other than the legacy and impact that I left left yeah. behind. And that is uh, that's powerful again, for all the listeners, what are the rules or codes, those keys to success by which you live your life?
2: Um, nobody's going to do it for you. Uh, you have to do it. You have to get up early. You have to work. You know, you—it's God. What a horrible era that we're living in, where the perception of me and what I do is a a, a one-second snapshot that ends up on ESPN or my Instagram, right? Like, you know, they didn't see the crotch rot of me in Ranger School. You know, like they didn't see the flesh falling off the bottom of my feet in selection, Um, the smell. Do you remember the smell of the dudes in buds when your body when you're in real act- when your body is eating itself because you're in such a calorie deficit you haven't slept you haven't been fed but you're still doing the volume of work your body literally starts eating it and then it starts em- emitting this ammonia smell this rancid putrid smell as your body is consuming its own muscle and you're off-gassing it's the meat of your body you're cannibalizing your body People never smell that. Can I I smell my, not on on there. (laughs) Like those are the moments that nobody sees um, that are real. And um, I wish they could see that. I wish they could smell that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think it was about two years ago. I went went back to Bud's and watched part of the Hell Week. You know, buddies that I served with are now the commanders of uh, Bud's. God, how comfortable I've become that I couldn't even remember it. And I'm watching it. I'm like, bro, you got to stop this training. You're going to kill these kids. And they're like hey, they this is we've got this down to a science yeah um and god bless those kids man you know we we play the generation game of hey this next generation is weak but you know still there's a percentage that are going to step up and, and yeah. hold that line that's that's a beautiful thing well tim um so many subjects we didn't get to man and such a fascinating individual and, and Again, the listeners need to go pick up this book. I can't wait to get a pre-copy signed. I'll get, you know, I, got you. I mean, That's the second time I've asked you yep. um, to, to, to read it myself. And I always feel special when I get a special copy. Uh, okay are
2: they call them galley
1: copies? I know Tim Kennedy. What's up? Galley,
2: G- galley copies. Is that what they call it? The, the first ones that you get? Because I get my galley copies in two weeks. And those are the ones that you like give to a famous person that...
1: that that then can read it. So you you get one. I've written like one book, which means I've got like one combat deployment. So I can't, I I remember how I spoke with like two combat deployments thinking I had it all figured out. So I I can't speak with any authority whatsoever. Well, again, thank you for attending. If you're in the audience, thanks for those that are uh, listening. And don't forget to visit mensjournal.com to sign up for the newsletters, get the latest tips from the everyday warrior strategies and tactics to live a practical, no hack uh, approach to, to living a purpose-driven and fulfilling life. Again, thank you. And until next time, this is Mike Sorelli and Tim Kennedy out here. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and pick up a new issue of Men's Journal magazine. Men's Journal magazine has features on health and fitness, adventure and travel, style, and my favorite, the coolest gear hitting the market today. Until next time, I'm Mike Sorelli